0: Now, the scripture says on the one hand, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Now, I suppose, in one sense, when Jesus comes back, it will be a surprise for us all because no one knows the day or the hour. But for Christians, whom Paul says are to know the times and the seasons, we will at least know the season for Christ's second coming. And if we know the season for His coming, we know that the rapture that precedes it must be that much closer.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Fleeing the Coming Tribulation Pastor Carl will be preaching from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 16. And today, we will see that the only way to flee God's wrath is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues.
0: When you go into Yad Vashem... We call it in America, in Washington, the Holocaust Museum. One of the first sites that you see is a picture of Augustine with these words. He said of the Jews, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, speaking of the Jews, with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word, and of course, He taught what was called the theory of substitution, namely that the church was now to be substituted for Israel. And again, Augustine said, because of their rejection of Jesus, they should, quote, bear the guilt for his death, for the death of the Savior, for through their fathers they have killed Christ. So when you witness to Jewish people, like I did yesterday to a man in our neighborhood, And you grow up knowing that Gentiles and Christians say that you're guilty of deicide, that you Jews are guilty of killing God Almighty. You know why they bristle up sometimes and turn back. And of course, again, Augustine planted the seeds for Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church didn't begin with Peter. I hope you know that. So it's in the late sixth century that the Pope of Rome takes precedence and they become the Roman Catholic Church. As the centuries unfolded, listen to what Pope Gregory IX, here he's pictured in 1227, he said, quote, they, the Jews, ought to know the yoke of perpetual enslavement because of their guilt. See to it that the perfidious Jews never in the future become insolent, but that they always suffer publicly the shame of their sin and servile fear. Pope Pius V in 1568 wrote these words. The Jewish people fell from the heights because of their faithlessness and condemned their redeemer to a shameful death. Their godlessness has assumed such forms that for the salvation of our own people, it becomes necessary to prevent their disease. He viewed them as a diseased people and sadly did not understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ, not to mention that not only were the Jews involved in the crucifixion of Christ, so were the Gentiles, and so were you and I, for he was pierced through for our iniquities. Here's a picture of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, of course, comes out of Roman Catholicism. He's an Augustinian monk, and so he carries with him a lot of Roman Catholic theology with a slightly different spin. His quote is very long, but let me just read a few lines from key paragraphs. In 1537, he writes of the Jews that, quote, their synagogues and schools should be burned, their houses should be destroyed, their Talmudic writings should be confiscated, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach, their money should be taken from them, they should be compelled to force labor. In 1924, Hitler, speaking to thousands of people, received a standing ovation for the following proclamation, and I quote. He said, I believe that today I am acting in accordance with the will of Almighty God as I announce the most important work that Christians could undertake, and that is to be against the Jews and get rid of them once and for all. And then he proceeded to go on to describe how Martin Luther had principally influenced his life. He said, and I quote, Martin Luther has been the greatest encouragement of my life. Luther was a great man. He was a giant. With one blow, he heralded the coming of the new dawn in the new age. He saw clearly that the Jews need to be destroyed and we're only beginning to see what we need to carry this work on. Julius Streicher of course during the Nuremberg trials after World War II defended himself with these words he said quote I have never said anything that Martin Luther did not say John Calvinism John Calvin kind of the reformed pope again he comes out of Roman Catholicism, and he wrote in 1560 in an article he did called A Response to Questions and Objections of a Certain Jew. Quote, there, the Jews, their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Here's a picture of Pope Pius XII. He was besieged during the Second World War from the Jewish people for help, but he remained neutral, though to his credit, he did house a few, a handful of Jews in the Vatican. But when they pled with him for help, he ignored them. He wrote a letter on June the 22nd, 1943 to FDR, opposing that the Jewish people be given a homeland. In fact, when he was the cardinal, Cardinal Piscelli, before he became the pope, he actually gave money to Adolf Hitler to help start the Nazi party. Replacement theology continued. Here's Pope Paul VI. That's the first pope I remember seeing on the wall in our kitchen. In every new pope, a new picture would come up and I can still have in my mind that picture of that man. And of course, at the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI created a document entitled The Reformists, where he describes, quote, the church as the new people of God, that they had replaced Israel. Uh, As recently as 2010, there was a synod that is pictured here that met in the Middle East, it was a special synod of bishops and they wrote this in the document that each of them signed. We Christians cannot speak of the promised land as an exclusive right for a privileged Jewish people. The promise was fulfilled by Christ. In the kingdom of God, there is no longer a chosen people. Now they will argue that there is a chosen church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, and that they in essence have usurped and replaced Israel. And so those who say there's no future for the Jewish people ignore the promises God made concerning the land that he gave to them. It is theirs by a deed that God gave. And those who ignore them as God's people to bring not just about the first coming, which they did, but the second coming, I don't care if they're Catholic or so-called evangelical, knowingly or unknowingly, they're planting the seeds for anti-Semitism. But I would say to any reformed brother who thinks that we are the new Israel to read these words from Jeremiah 31. The prophet says, this is what the Lord says. He who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the descendants of Israel will cease to be a nation before me forever." This is what the Lord says, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the descendants of Israel for everything they have done, declares the Lord. And so because Calvin believed that the body of Christ, not the Roman church, again a different spin, was the new Israel, he read Romans 9, 10, and 11 through that lens. But if you're new to the Bible and you just sit down and read those three chapters of scripture, it's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. Paul has concluded chapter eight by saying, nothing, and I mean nothing, as we sang today, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. And to prove it, he illustrates in nine, 10, and 11 with Israel. And so in chapter 9, he speaks not of personal election, but of national election, how God elected a nation out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah. In chapter 10, he deals with their current rejection, their unbelief, but in chapter 11 of their future restoration when they will come to faith. And so chapter 11, he opens with these words, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Meganoita. It's the strongest adversative in the New Testament. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he'll say in verse two of that chapter, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So some people, sometimes because of prejudicial presuppositions, that they either inherited from their forefathers or from the system of theology that they are trying to defend, believe that God is done with Israel. And they are doing that largely on experience. You know, we as Evangelicals will speak to our Pentecostal charismatic friends and say, look, any experience you have needs to be put under the authority of Scripture. You don't say I believe because I had this experience. Scripture must be the final arbiter. We speak of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. But because for centuries it appeared that God had done nothing on the basis of experience, they reread the prophecies as it related to the people of Israel. And they explain away the clear teachings of scripture and they're putting the body of Christ to sleep. Verse three, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now if you go back a page to chapter 21 and verse 12, you will read, Jesus entered the temple and he's in the temple all the way into chapter 24 and verse one where the scene changes. Verse one of this chapter says, Jesus came out of the temple and he's no longer speaking to the crowds. He is speaking, the text says to the disciples privately and Mark elucidates for us that the disciples are foreign name, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So this is Tuesday before Friday, which is Passover in which he will be crucified. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives and Mark tells us opposite the temple. And so when you go on the Mount of Olives and you're standing on it unless your back is to the temple, his back is not to it, he's looking directly at the temple buildings. This is what you will see today. Again, the Dome of the Rock and some other pagan buildings up there on top of the temple mount. Um, This is what they saw in Jesus' day. They saw a complex of buildings. By the way, we have just confirmed, by God's grace, we are planning to go back to Israel in September of 2023. Registration will open in a week or so. But this is what they saw, the buildings. Tell us, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, there's three questions, though grammatically, technically two questions, with the second question having two parts to it tell us, first question, when will these things happen? That is the prediction of the temple being destroyed. As already noted, its destruction would be a fantastic event. No natural force of nature could pull this off. This would have to be some man-made kind of plan. The temple was three times the size of the Dome of the Rock. Um, The rocks used in it were, for the most part, larger than all the stones used in the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramid itself is 5,000 years old. It was approximately 1,000 years old when Abraham saw it. It was 1,500 years old when Moses put his eyes on it. And if Joseph and Mary, when they were in Egypt, saw it, it was 3,000 years old. It was an incredible piece of architecture. And yet, the average stone used in the temple was twice the size of anything in the Great Pyramids. And so they knew when Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple that this was important because, again, when Solomon's temple was destroyed and when Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it, again, it had, would have great consequence. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, the Jewish people are going to say that. I'm not coming back until they say that. And so they want to know what will be the sign of your coming. When when is this going to happen? When are the Jewish people who have given you so much trouble, Jesus, when are they going to respond like this? They want to know, and it's a good question. Your coming, your parousia. The word is a technical word that was used of a great king or a governor that would make his entrance. Well, this is the parousia of all parousias. When Jesus comes back, to the earth. Notice um, another question, the third question or the second part of the second question. And what will be the sign of your coming? That's question two, in the end of the age. The old King James says the end of the world, the new King James like the NES reads the end of the age because the world doesn't really end. We move from age to age, this current earth will someday end. But the scripture speaks of us going from age to age. And when you read Matthew's response, he just briefly has noted the destruction of the temple. Whereas Luke and Mark give great detail on it. But he focuses on Christ coming back to the earth. Why, because that's the theme of his gospel. The theme and purpose of his gospel is that Jesus is the king. And so in this section, Jesus looks down the corridors of time and he gives us the signs of the time that will unfold before he can rule and reign. Seven signs that we've already studied that he calls the birth pangs. And I noted for you earlier that they perfectly match what we read in Revelation chapter six with the sealed judgments. Here's a chart to dust off your memory again. He speaks of false Christ. That's the first horse, the white horse. He speaks of wars, that's the red horse, famines, the black horse, death, the pale horse, martyrs, cosmic changes, and the worldwide preaching of the gospel. The worldwide preaching of the gospel, by the way, didn't happen in the first century. And so for those who take all Matthew 24 with the exception of the second coming, as historical, the preaching of the gospel had just started. But it will be completed. Every tribe, tongue, and nation during the great tribulation period will hear and learn all about Jesus. Now people today say, well, we're witnessing the birth pangs. We're not. That's a sloppy handling of the text. We are witnessing that there's a pregnancy. But the very events that Jesus outlines in verses four through 14 are birth pangs. In fact, he says they are just the beginning of birth pangs. And so it's not by accident that these two chapters, Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, fit hand in glove. Now the scripture says on the one hand, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. I suppose in one sense, when Jesus comes back, it will be a surprise for us all because no one knows the day or the hour. But for Christians whom Paul says are to know the times and the seasons, we will at least know the season for Christ's second coming. And if we know the season for his coming, we know that the rapture that precedes it must be that much closer. And so again, for these prophecies that we're going to look again at this morning to take place, the Jews have to be in the land. They were scattered from, 135, from 70 AD to 132 across the world. They have to be back in the land. Jerusalem has to be under their control. But we are witnessing what they call Aliyah. Aliyah is a Hebrew word that means coming up, moving up. It's used in two ways by Jewish people. When someone comes up to read the Torah, and they've been moved up in life because that's a great holy privilege, or when they move back to Israel, they too are moving up. And so every single week, more and more Jews across the planet are leaving the various countries of the world and taking up full-time residence in Israel. And so for verse 15 to happen, the abomination of desolation, the Jews have to be back in the land, they have to want to build a new temple. Now understand, uh, I have a book here, it's called um, in in Arabic, Al-Harim Al-Sharef, which means the Noble Temple. That's what Arabs call the Temple Mount. The Jews call it the Temple Mount. They call it the Noble Sanctuary. This was written in 1925 by the head Muslim in the world at that time. And in this little booklet, it was basically given to visitors when they came to the Temple Mount, it said that the original Solomonic Temple was right up there on top of the Temple Mount. They said that, they taught that. They have since changed their story and said, no, the Jews never had a temple up here. Though about a decade ago, wanting to expand one of their underground meeting places without permission from the Israeli government, they began to dig it out truckload after truckload and they said what's going on here and all the dirt that they were throwing away the jewish people for archaeological purposes retrieved some of you went with me one year to the temple mount uh digging and we saw all these various artifacts that volunteers as they sift through the dirt have found and it proved that this was the location of the solomonic temple and the second temple that followed written by zerubbabel So all I'm trying to say is that, look, this temple is going to be rebuilt in spite of what people say. And so there are Orthodox Jews who recognize that nearly 200 of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament cannot be fulfilled unless the sacrificial system is in place. There are Jewish people who recognize that sin deserves death, and therefore without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Yet, I would just say that in spite of um, their desire to build a temple, if they built it last year, it would have been no good to them. Why? Because it has to be cleansed. And it has to be cleansed in a very specific way. Here are two red heifers, Uh, bring up the next slide. Uh, These are two of the five that has made it to Israel recently. A red heifer is a female cow. Here's a rabbi inspecting a red heifer. Don't be confused by the horns in this cow. Unlike deer, uh, red heifers and cattle can have horns and be female. And so a whole contingency of rabbis came to this Texas ranch. providentially, none of these five red heifers had been tagged in any respect. And they came and went over every inch of the body of these red heifers because you couldn't just present any kind of a red heifer. You had to present a specific kind of red heifer for God to accept it. You couldn't have a black hair growing out of the red heifer. In Numbers 19, go home and read that chapter, here it is. It says, this is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect, on which a yoke has never been placed. Now, the Jewish people say that there have been nine qualified red heifers in the history of all the temples. And so for nearly three decades, they have been looking for a red heifer without spot or blemish and without a single black hair in it. And so they found them, and here's a picture on October the 5th, one Texas cattle rancher. He could have sold them for millions of dollars. It turns out he is a born again Christian and he gave them to the people of Israel. They are arriving, these five cattle, these five female heifers, into Israel. When they came, uh, there was over 300 priests and rabbis and Jews blowing the shofar, celebrating. Many of the Jews heralded this as the beginning step for the temple to be rebuilt. Others said it was the foundation for the Messiah to return. Either way, and we may see it through a different set of eyes, for ritual purification. The temple has to be built. Now, there was a time when these Jewish men who wanted to offer sacrifices were viewed as extremists. But now the whole mindset of the Jewish municipalities has changed. They see it as part of their culture. And even now when these Jewish rabbis, and there's over 500 DNA Tested Levites who are practicing the sacrificial system, not in the temple, obviously. The national media across Israel comes because they believe it's very, very important. And so here's, again, a chart that, again, helps us to see where we're at. The rapture takes place. There's a space of time of weeks, days, or months. I don't think years. Some think it could be years. But it appears in light of the events and as they unfold that it would be a brief time But then there will step on the scene this Antichrist, this first beast whom we studied, who will sign a peace treaty with Israel. For the first three and a half years he'll be kind to them, but in the middle of the three and a half years he will put a stop to the sacrifice, Daniel says. Paul affirms the same truth. He'll make himself out to be God, and from that point on Israel will be persecuted. And so the trigger event is given to us here in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We've seen there are two aspects unfolded in Scripture to this event called the abomination of desolation. The first aspect is the Antichrist goes in the temple and he says, I'm God. Paul says he is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now that in and of itself would not be wrong if he was God. Jesus went into the temple and he called this his father's house. He equated himself to God in the temple. But it was true of him. But it will not be true of this man and so there's a second aspect to the abomination of desolation that we've studied that will prove there's no possible way he can be both God and break the Decalogue because God specifically speaks of not making an idol. Now remember, we studied it, Revelation 13:14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform and the presence of the beasts talking about the second beast, who's also called the false prophet. He's given power by the devil himself to perform miracles in the presence of the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life.
1: If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program, God's Prophetic Schedule 018. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost?, You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.